So glad you're here with us today uh, as we continue our sermon series on lessons from the early church. And today, uh, in light of the fact that we're going to have in one of our two Bible classes today, uh, the beginning study on apologetics, I'm going to give you the very first apologetic in the Bible. Uh, it was delivered by Stephen, and it's a powerful example to us as to how God would have us do the defense of the gospel. And every single one of you needs to be prepared to do this, really. This is a part of the responsibility that we have as Christians, that when we go out in the world and we see people that don't know what they're talking about or make improper theological references, that we be prepared to discuss it uh, in a loving and kind way. I don't want you to say you're going to hell I hope you like hot weather. You know, I would avoid that kind of statement, I mean, because typically that's not going to bring people to Jesus. But I would like to see you say things in a way that enlightens an ignorant world. Um, and uh, I'm going to tell you that I really have spent my life effectively in that business. Of course, I was doing it in a courtroom. Uh, and then God gracefully allowed me to exit the courtroom and brought me to where I really was meant to be, here. Uh, but I would typically, whenever I would come across uh, an important expert witness against us, someone who often wrote a book, uh, someone that was very arrogant and full of themselves, one of the things that I would do very early in the trial, usually within the first half hour, is I would ask them a question that I knew that they could not answer. I had prepped it. I knew that they could not answer. And typically, it would be as if I threw a fastball at your forehead, and I hit you right here with the ball. And it would knock you so far off your game that for the next hour, you weren't listening to anything else I said. All you were doing was going back in your mind and trying to reflect how I could have made a better answer. What can I do to fix that? And meanwhile, I was like Grant taking Richmond in the court case and, and, and running over them. Uh, and, you know, uh, witnesses would try to befriend you. I had a guy who wrote a very famous witness who wrote a book uh, on hotels that's considered to be the, the top of the food chain on hotels. Uh, I was representing Marriott. And in the middle of the trial, as I have his book out, and I'm cross-examining on his book, he takes the book from me opens the front cover, and writes this very nice introduction to me. It's a pleasure to be cross-examined by you. <laughs> Best regards, and he wrote his name. Well, that didn't make any difference to me, you know, but that's what you run across in the world. Well, I want to prepare you for what you're going to run across when you defend the gospel. Uh, because that's what Jesus wants you to be. He wants you to prepare, and I'm very, very uh, happy that my friend Kevin uh, Kipe is going to do this today. And so I'm going to preach to you today from Acts chapter 7. It's 60 verses. Don't worry. I'm not going to read it, all right? But when you go home, you read it. I'm going to distill these verses in order to make a cogent argument for you on the importance of apologetics. Um, and so there can be little doubt that Luke, who wrote Acts, saw this as a seminal event in the life of the church. 
he saw that uh, Stephen's defense of the gospel was critical, which is why he put it there in full. It is the longest sermon in all of the New Testament. Now think about that, when Paul himself wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. So that being the case, Luke obviously saw this as critical. Now, what you also ought to know is that this marked a change in the experience of the church because now, for the first time, regular, ordinary people came out against Christianity. And as Stephen would go into the synagogues and be prepared to debate, he would come across foreign-born Jews who would be antagonistic towards him and towards the gospel. Well, as a result of that, as a result of that, they hauled him before the Sanhedrin, and Acts chapter 7 is that trial in his defense. But as a result of his death and martyrdom, the Jerusalem church split. They fled. They were afraid for their lives. And so what would happen would be that people now would leave, Christians would leave from Jerusalem and go throughout disparate areas of the world. And that's how God used, really, used martyrdom to advance the work of God. And so you see this here. Uh, and so really, uh, it becomes a seminal event in the life of the early church. This changes the focus of Christianity away from Jerusalem and for the rest of Acts focuses on the outer parts of the world as Paul uh, and Barnabas and Silas would go and evangelize. And so Luke evidently saw the importance of this early speech, which is why he printed it and wrote it in full. Uh, and so what this means to me is that in order to be an effective Christian, you need to be able to defend the faith. You need to be able to, wherever you are, whether it's at dinner or at a country club or some social gathering, when somebody says something that you know is wrong, uh, that is an improper uh, understanding of the gospel, you need to stand up in a nice way uh, and tell them that it's wrong and contradict doctrine. Uh, and Peter said this so well in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which is on the board. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared. Always be prepared. Understand why you're a Christian. Understand why you are walking with God. Understand what Christ did with you, for you. And I used to do this with my son, uh, even when he was uh, an early teenager. Uh, and I would say to him, look, when people say to you, uh, what's new? What are you doing in your life? Just don't say nothing. You know how kids are. No, nothing nothing. I would say, learn to speak in sound bites. Learn to speak in sound bites. Have a sentence that you thought about that summarizes your thought process. And so when somebody asks you that question, you can synthesize within one sentence what the proper answer should be. I used to tell my lawyers the same thing. Speak in sound bites. And that's what God wants you to do. That's what apologetics is about, being able to synthesize all these things so that when somebody says, why are you a Christian? 
You don't go, well, you know, I was raised in a godly family. I went to Bible study. I went to Sunday. That's good. That's good. Why are you a Christian? You still haven't answered the question. Now be prepared. That's what this is about. Now be prepared. Uh, so many Christians are unable to do this. Uh, they lack a solid foundation for their faith. They're not prepared to discuss theology, and that's why they get tossed around from hither to yon with all kinds of deceitful doctrines. Well, that's gonna, not going to happen with our church. I want each and every one of you to be strong, effective witnesses, and we're going to spend time to make sure that you are. Now, apologetics is the study of the defense of the faith. It's a Greek word. Paul was not only adept at presenting the gospel, but he was also one of the most competent defenders of the faith. If you look at Acts chapter 17, verse 2 to 3, you will see this on the board, uh, demonstrates this at work. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. How about that guy? Three separate Saturdays, he goes into the synagogue before an adverse crowd, people that are not interested in hearing it, and yet he presents the story of faith. And I'm convinced that when he did that, he used Psalm 22 to describe in detail how Jesus would die. That's a thousand years before. And Isaiah 53 that spoke about the suffering servant, and that was 700 years before. And that's how you present the gospel to a group of people that don't really want to hear about it. Uh, my wife's dear friend uh, is a devout Jew, uh, and I know that she listens to the sermons, and, and I recently commended to her through my wife that she listens to, listen to the Easter message, which is the third day. And I'm convinced that Paul spoke extensively on the third day, that for 1,500 years, God spoke on being aware of the third day. And we know that Jesus would ultimately rise on the third day. Also, if you look at Jude 3 in Jude, we don't talk about Jude often, but Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, theologians believe, and it says there in Jude 3, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to all God's people. Contend. Contend for the faith. That's your responsibility. And so the great defender of the faith before Paul, you see, uh, was Stephen. He was the first person who really contended for the faith. Uh, and what would happen here, he was a brilliant man, and you know the story from last week, how he was given the responsibility of taking care of the widows and their financial needs and the fact that they would be provided with food and other necessaries. And yet, despite all that, God poured great talent and giftedness into this man. And so Stephen would go into the synagogues and he would defend the faith. He would debate people. And he was so eloquent and so gifted that his opponents could not stand up against him. Uh, and these were foreign-born Jews from disparate territories throughout the known world at that time. 
and they would be so angry they finally hauled him before the Sanhedrin for trial. And they claimed that he was a blasphemer. Now his defense in Acts chapter 7 is totally dependent on the Old Testament scriptures. He didn't give people his opinion. He relied specifically on the evidence of the Bible. And I would say this to you, your opinions are great, but if you want to be adept at apologetics, focus on the evidence. Focus on the evidence. And when you focus on the evidence, God will speak through you very clearly. Uh, and so powerful was his defense and apologetic of, of the gospel and Jesus Christ that here he is in front of an angry group of adverse witnesses in the Sanhedrin, and for 60 verses, as you read it, they sit there absolutely spellbound, listening to every word that he says. That's how powerful and eloquent he was until he finished. Uh, then in rage, at the end, they killed him. And so Acts 7 opens uh, as the trial begins, and the main part of the chapter consists really of Stephen's defense against the false charges, the fact that he was not a blasphemer. But three other ideas permeate themselves and are woven into his apologetic. Uh, and he knew he had to capture the attention of the audience, and there was no better way to capture the attention of a Jewish audience than regale them with the history of Israel. And that's what he does. And so his defense really is predicated on the, on the history of Israel. And he does it in a very powerful uh, and eloquent way, and it, and it prepares the groundwork for his apologetic. Now, another part of that, that apologetic and speech was to indict his audience uh, for rejecting the Messiah, that they killed the Messiah. Uh, and so his apologetic builds slowly and powerfully throughout the 60 verses until in verses 51 to 53, which I will speak on at the conclusion of the sermon, uh, he shows conclusively that they rejected the Messiah and that they murdered uh, the Messiah. And that they imitated their forefathers, their apostate fathers, who rejected Joseph, who rejected Moses, and now even rejected Jesus, and before Jesus, God himself. And so Stephen sought in this apologetic uh, to present to them Jesus, uh, the Messiah, using Joseph and Moses as the very forerunners of Christ. That's how you speak about your faith to a group of people that are not Christians. You start with what they know. Now, he establishes and defends himself first as to blasphemy, the most serious crime, the accusation of blaspheming against God himself. And he established that set right from the beginning, that he fully believes in God, that he's given his life to God, the God of Israel, and that the old covenant is established and fulfilled in Christianity. He focuses on Abraham as a man of faith, uh, completely by faith, and Abraham obeyed God's call and left his homeland. I, had, I, I often had a chance to speak to a very intelligent Jewish lawyer who was in my building, who, who was devout, knew his Bible inside out, uh, and he would, when he knew that I was in town, would want to come up and talk to me about religion. And he said to me at one point, his name was Ira, 
what else? He would say to me, you know, John, you know what aggravates me about you Christians? He said, you people always say you have the better religion. You have the better religion. And, and he says, I find that offensive. And I said, Ira, no, no. We don't have the better religion. We have the religion that was completed by what you started. You see, Ira, you started it, and you took the ball all the way down the field to the five-yard line. And then, when the star fullback came on the scene and was handed the ball, you walked off the field. His mouth was agape. You see, this is exactly how you try to explain to people what their positions are. No, we just completed what you started. It's not a question of being better. It's a question of being completed. Uh, and so he makes it clear that, that the old covenant is fulfilled in Christianity. It is completed by faith. It's what God promised Abraham. This, this is nothing new. And so now he begins to lay the groundwork, you see, for the blistering condemnation he will give in verses 51 to 53. But he does it in an elegant and gracious way. He talks about the fact that they had constantly opposed God. He talks about the 12 patriarchs. Oh, they loved the patriarchs. They loved them and elevated them. Well, guess what? These were the same 12 guys that sold Joseph into slavery. How do you like that? They sold them into slavery, all right? The very gift that God had given them that would ultimately save the, the Jewish nation. They despised and rejected him, uh, that God had set him aside for a special blessing. This was a graphic illustration, you see, of the nation's spiritual blindness to God that would be manifested later in the life of Jesus Christ. And he's demonstrating that to them from the very beginning, the very seeds of their religion. And so despite his brother's rejection uh, with, of Joseph, God remained with Joseph and blessed Joseph and elevated Joseph so that he became the second most important person in Egypt, right below uh, Pharaoh. And so what was clear here, as he makes it very clear, is that the 12 patriarchs were apostate and opposed God. And that's the very seeds of what's taking place here with Jesus Christ. And now, although he waits until the conclusion of the sermon to openly declare that Jesus is the Messiah, he waits, he waits as he brings it along, which is the right way to do an apologetic. Uh, and in, even in his historical summation, you see, he gives glimpses of Christ's life and ministry. In many ways, Joseph's life is analogous to Jesus' life. Why do I say that? Well, as, as it's clear when you study this, well, both were from uh, the, the country of Israel. Both were Jews. Jesus, like Joseph, was delivered, delivered up out of envy and jealousy. Joseph, Jesus was condemned to death by false witnesses. Joseph was imprisoned as a result of lying and false witnesses. And just as God freed Joseph 
from that prison and elevated him. God freed Jesus from the prison of death and elevated him to the right hand of God. And so you see this as, as, as Stephen is laying the very foundation, the very underpinnings of why they need to repent. And after Joseph's rejection by his brothers, Stephen reminds them that a great famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan. They were punished. And so Stephen makes the point similarly, Israel's rejection of Jesus has plunged Israel into effectively a spiritual famine, a famine that had taken place really spiritually for hundreds of years. And it would last, that spiritual famine would last until the last days when Israel will be saved. And you look at Romans 11, verse 26, and Paul speaks eloquently on this. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There will be a time when Israel will be saved. There will be a time when the remnant comes to the Lord. It's when Jesus will come back in his second return to this world. It will happen. God's promises will be taking place. Now, Stephen now moves against the accusation that he rejected Moses. And I'm doing it this way. I'm synthesizing this because I can't read 60 verses, but you at home can do this. And so now they said, you, you blasphemed Moses. You were against Moses. And so he proves again that he reveres Moses. He's a devout Jew. Uh, and Stephen argued eloquently in his apologetic that the Jewish people originally disowned and rejected Moses himself. And you remember that story when Moses, uh, as a prince in Egypt, went down uh, to basically uh, defend the uh, Israelites who were in captivity. Uh, one day he found an Egyptian soldier beating up uh, and, and brutalizing a Jewish man. And, and Moses came to that man's defense and slew that Egyptian soldier. Well, the next day or so, he comes back and sees two Jews fighting amongst themselves. And he enters between them and says, stop, you're brothers, you can't do this. Uh, and, and they say to him, who made you a Lord and judge over us? Are you kidding me? That's what your response is to the man who's been called to save the Jewish people. And so he leaves. He flees because he knows that they won't even stand up for him. The very man who's been called to be the leader of the Jewish people has to flee and spend 40 years out in the wilderness as a savior. And so you understand, don't tell me that you people revered Moses. You despised, you persecuted him. Yes, at the end, you came to understand who he was. But don't say that about you. It's not true. Uh, in every way. And furthermore, Moses predicted the coming of the Messiah himself. Look at what he said in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. But would they? No. They were just like their apostate forefathers before them. 
They had rejected God's deliverer just as they had rejected many of the prophets that had spoken before. Now, had the Sanhedrin hearing this, and they were, they, they were listening with, with rapt attention, with their mouths agape as you read this story, had they been willing to consider the facts, they could not have missed the parallels, really, between the nation's history and their antagonism towards Jesus Christ. This is what they did before. This is how they acted for more than a thousand years. Uh, Moses humbled himself by leaving a palace uh, and, and becoming a humble servant of God. Jesus humbled himself also by becoming a man, leaving heaven. And look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, that great passage that I love. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so Moses was rejected at first by the Jewish people, just as Jesus was. Moses was a shepherd. Jesus was a shepherd. Moses redeemed the people from bondage. Jesus redeemed men from bondage of sin. The very history of the life of Moses foreshadows the very history of our Lord and Savior. And so it was then an easy transition, you see, from the speech about Moses to the law since they were so closely associated. Now he's going to talk about the law because, you know, the Jewish people elevated the law. We have the law. We don't follow it, but we have it. We have the law. So Stephen affirms his belief in the law. He declares that God was the author of the law and that Moses was the recipient of the law. This was not blasphemy. This was factual, evident by their own history. He now goes on the offensive. Now he goes on the offensive. While Stephen did not reject the law or reject Moses, he argued that their forerunners disobeyed the law, disobeyed Moses, uh, and typically, often, even in the 40 years in the wilderness, they violated the law and rejected Moses. Even as Mount Moses was on Mount Sinai, coming face to face with God, getting the Ten Commandments, in those 40 days, the Jewish people are down and convince Aaron, we need to have an idol. We need to worship. We don't know where Moses is. He's been gone for 40 days. It's time for us to move on. We need another God. And so what you see here is the very seeds of Egypt, which were idolatry, come up again. They worship a calf, and calf worship was typical in Egypt. This is what they had expended for 40 years. That's idolatry, and you see this here. And so for hundreds of years, the Jewish people will be inundated with idolatry. And this God repudiated in every possible way. Uh, and, and it was, he had every right to destroy this nation that he had taken out of captivity, that it's still not totally given their heart to him, even as he brings the Ten Commandments down. So don't tell me, don't cite the fact that you have the law when you never listen to the law, and don't cite Moses when you rejected Moses over and over again. And so God remained, however, faithful, 
faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham, even though these people did not deserve it. And so then Stephen defended himself from the accusation that he had spoken against the Jewish house of worship. We have the temple, one of the seven wonders of the world, and you have spoken against it. Now, the facts are that the temple was transitory. It had gone in various phases. It had started in a tent, uh, and, and, and it became over years it got to be in a temple. But it dwelt, that, that Ark of the Covenant dwelt in various places. And so it led to the point that Stephen made that the most high does not dwell in the houses made by man. You can't imprison the sovereign God of the universe by supporting the fact that you created a habitation and that's where he is? No, he's not. He is not there. He, he dwells in our hearts. He is everywhere in the very universe that he created. Uh, Solomon understood that truth as well, even as he built the temple. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, and it says there, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. How about that? For you Jews who think the temple is the be-all and end-all, when the man who really was responsible for building it says that. Uh, and so you cannot condemn God to a human habitation. You cannot. And, and he speaks about this as their continual apostasy towards God, not recognizing who God was. This was a devastating indictment that he prepared as part of this apologetic. They were just like their forefathers, who rejected Joseph, who rejected Moses. Uh, and then even he cites D David. They were stiff-necked and obstinate. Uh, and the resisting of the Holy Spirit uh, forcefully drove home the point by ha having him say, which one of the prophets did your forefathers not persecute? Which one? Nobody could answer, because there was no answer. And look at what Jesus said himself in Luke chapter 11, verse 41, verse 47, which is on the board. Luke, Luke 11, verse 47. Woe to you. Now listen to these words from Jesus. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God, in his wisdom, said, quote, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill, and others they will persecute. That's what God said. Therefore, this generation, I'm going to emphasize this, listen clearly to what Jesus warned them. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that have been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be responsible for it all. 
Have you ever reflected on that? Have you ever reflected on the fact that the Lord and Savior God himself says to the Jewish people, you will not accept me and there will be a massive judgment? All of the deaths, all of the bloods, of all of the slain prophets from the beginning of time will be held accountable to you. Now do you wonder, is it any clearer why in 40 years when Jerusalem will be taken captive, the temple will be destroyed, and one million Jews, men, women, and children will die. Is it any wonder when God had indicated this, that there's a coming judgment? Folks, we have to understand something. This is God speaking. We're not playing games. Yes, I'd love to have a campfire and bring out marshmallows, and we all love each other, but let's understand something. Truth is truth. Truth is truth, and that's what we're dealing with. God told them this was a day of reckoning. This was a day of judgment, and judgment comes. It's important for us to understand this. And so Stephen draws the parallel uh, in his uh, apologetic to its bloody conclusion. As their forefathers who had resisted all of the prophets that had come before and killed them, so they had become the same way. They had become murderers. They had disobeyed the law. They never kept the law. They were without excuse since the law pointed over and over again to Jesus Christ. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39. You look, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. You could read the Bible from morning to night. You understand? And unless you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, all you're doing are reading words. And I love the Bible. And I'm called as a Bible teacher, but I'm going to tell you flat out, the question is your heart. Have you truly accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And so in conclusion, he brings this thundering apologetic in which he goes back to the beginning of time in the Jewish people, and he brings it together in Acts chapter 7, verse 51 to 53, which I'm now going to read to you. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. And so very clearly, while their forefathers had murdered the prophets, they had now done worse. They murdered the Messiah. They murdered God himself. Uh, And now they were about to commit another murder because as he did this eloquent defense, They hauled him off uh, and brought him and stoned him to death. Uh, And the fact that he died at the conclusion of this speech does not tarnish the brilliance of it because God had called him to give this defense. God had used him. And it's like this. God had lit the match of Christianity through this man. This is how the world would be evangelized, through his death. Yes, he would die, but God had a purpose He would evangelize. His speech was heard most likely by the greatest missionary in the history of the world who was unbelievably moved by this speech, Paul. 
who sat there and watched it with approval, who I am convinced whose life was changed even as he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, and so Stephen's life is not dimmed by his death, but is actually even brighter. And so this sermon cried out for repentance. It cried out for people to say, Lord, forgive us. Lord, give us a chance to come to you. Lay not this sin at our feet, Lord. Forgive us. And yet they did not move. And as I said to my dear friend, you carried the ball down to the five-yard line. But when it came time to cross the goal line, when the star player arrived on the scene, you walked out. And so I say to you, church, you need to be prepared to present the gospel in the way that I've done this. You need to be able to talk to people and show them what Jesus is about. You need to show the evidence in the scriptures, the evidence of the old covenant being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You need to be able to defend Christianity no matter where you are, whether it's at a Thanksgiving dinner table or it's at the country club. When something comes up, you need to speak up. And I pray that God gives you the courage and the graciousness to do it in a way that invites people to come to him. Amen, church? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for Stephen. I thank you for this incredible apologetic, the first one in the New Testament. Lord, how it teaches us about what our responsibility is to carry the flame of the gospel. Lord, help us as we leave here today to be energized and committed in a way that we may never have been that way before, to understand you are calling us to defend Christianity. You are calling us to defend the faith. You are calling us to lift high the cross of Jesus Christ. Strengthen us, Lord, and give us courage that each and every one of us may do that as we leave here today. Be with our people. Protect them this week and bring them back next week to continue our worship of you as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.